If you stand with me, please, as we read the Word of God and follow along in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelled in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more, as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, of man O Lord God? Now, what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. And let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore, 
Let it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As I was uh, listening to a few of the songs this morning and some of the words of the hymns, I was reminded of this heart of David we'll be speaking to this morning as we look forward and keep looking ahead to uh, the Christ who is to come. I was reminded of a of a chorus that I'd like to begin with and just segue that right into uh, prayer and then we'll jump into 2 Samuel. Give me a pure heart, one just like your heart. I can serve you with each day. With no distractions, My words and my actions will magnify your name. In everything that I do, I want to glorify you. Give me a pure heart, one just like your heart. Give me a pure heart, I pray. Lord, you are our rock, our fortress, our savior. You are the shelter in whom we find protection. You're our shield. You're the power that saves us. You provide all that's needed for your people. You're our refuge. You're our strong tower of defense to whom we can run. You alone are worthy to be praised. Your strong hand delivers us from our enemies. To the faithful, Lord, you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity, you show integrity. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You rescue the humble, but your eyes watch the proud, that you may bring them down. Oh Lord, you are our lamp. You are the one who lights up our darkness. God, your way is perfect. All your promises are true. Who is God except the Lord, says the word. Who but you is our solid rock. Because of your goodness, O Lord, let this people here praise you. May we be a people who worship you. Let us be found presenting our bodies to you, Lord, living sacrifices. We thank you this morning for being a covenant-keeping God. You are trustworthy and sure. Always faithful, always true. We ask that you would teach us just now from your holy word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you began reading 2 Samuel this week, and I hope and pray you had a chance to read through 2 Samuel this week, I hope right out of the gate you notice something familiar. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass... Remember that phrase from last week? We begin 2 Samuel with this. 2 Samuel opens in the same fashion, really, that 1 Samuel opens in regard to a transition. There's transition that's going on. In 1 Samuel, the transition is from one government to another. Remember, we're going from the period of the, of the judges to the period of the kings, Right? We spoke of leadership transitions from Samuel to Saul in 1 Samuel. We saw David waiting in the wings, on deck, if you will. 
We saw household transitions. We saw there were many poor transitions preserved in the text. We see Elkanah with two wives and Samuel with two sons who didn't walk in godly ways. We see this man Saul who did have a son named Jonathan who exhibits outstanding loyalty to David, a very godly man. And then we have someone like Michael who was, well, she was not so godly. And we pick up a little bit of her story even here in 2 Samuel. We concluded last week by talking and looking at these spiritual transitions. And we were, we were looking at and tracing, where is the ark of God? Where is the presence of God? Where is the heart of the people? Are they walking with God? Is the leadership godly and charting the course for this people so that they too would embrace God's words and God's ways? Well, today, as we take yet another road trip through the scriptures... We are looking at 2 Samuel, a continuation of 1 Samuel. In fact, the two were originally one book. And as you feasted this week on the 24 chapters of 2 Samuel, I would ask, what did you notice? What did you find? What stood out? What personalities dominated the text? What themes did you pick up on? Perhaps most importantly, what is God doing in this book? And how does this one book help explain the whole of the scriptures? Remember the one storyline of the Bible. We have this faithful, covenant-keeping God providing salvation to his people through his son. Right? That's, that's really the one grand theme or storyline encompassing the whole of the scriptures. We're looking at 66 books and we've got one main attraction. This is a faithful, it's a story of a faithful covenant keeping God providing salvation to his people through his son. This is week number nine in our journey through the scriptures. In 2 Samuel is the history of God at work through the life of David. Through the life of David. A brief summary up front might be helpful in terms of who this David is. I, I know that many of you are aware of his name. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the passage that Ralph read this morning. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name. Reminds me of the blessing that was given to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. Like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Well, David was introduced to us in 1 Samuel and his name actually comes on the scene in the genealogy of Ruth chapter 4. Remember that? David is the last name that's recorded in the book of Ruth, showing us the line of Perez, continuing through Boaz and Obed and Jesse, the father of David. That's Ruth 4.22. The last word in Ruth is David, shining light on David, the one to come. This line of Christ. David is described well, perhaps, as I've read through First and Second Samuel, this may be the best description, a thorough description, if you will, of David. And interestingly enough, it comes from one of Saul's servants. In chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, you've got to go backwards just a little bit. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, remember this is at the period of time when the Spirit of the Lord came upon David, verse 13. And in verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and this distressing spirit from the Lord troubled Saul. And his servants thought it would be a good idea for Saul to have someone who was skilled at the harp to come and play for Saul whenever this distressing spirit came upon him. And so Saul said, that's a great idea. Go find somebody that can play well. Did you notice that? Go find someone who can play well. The last thing I need to hear is a harp that, that, uh, somebody that can't play the harp. Find someone who can play well. 
Then look at verse 18. One of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite. Listen to the description of David. And remember at this time, David is young. But listen to this. I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing. You might want to write these down. I think these are worthy attributes, characteristics. Skillful in playing. A mighty man of valor. A man of war. Prudent in speech. And a handsome person. And the last one. And the Lord is with him. And the Lord is with him. Tell me, church, out of all those descriptors, which one is the most important? The Lord is with him. You know, there are lots of things that people might say about you in this day. But in the end, will they say, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with her. Will you be known in that way? David is known as a king who walked with God. As we'll see, he didn't walk flawlessly. This book, though, in 2 Samuel, this book doesn't hide David's sins. Praise God, because we learn a whole lot about David when adversity comes, when sin comes on the scene. And yet it's through this adversity of sin's entanglements, we see David's heart. We see his heart. You read Matthew chapter 1 and you see this David the king in the line of Christ. David is from Bethlehem. He's from the tribe of Judah, which reminds us and ought to trigger us to Genesis chapter 49. The last words of Jacob as he's blessing the tribes. In Genesis 49, verse 10, he says that the scepter shall not depart from what tribe? Judah. David comes from this royal line through which would come in the days ahead the Christ who is, church, the main attraction in the whole of Scripture. Okay? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse, is he not the father of David? And a branch shall grow out of his roots. Christ is going to come from the line of David. Luke chapter 1, you remember the story when the angel of God visits Mary. And those verses in 30 to 32, part of that particular passage the angel announces that, that this one, Jesus, the one to be born to you, Mary, he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Those are the words spoken to Mary. We see a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, verse 38. There was a certain blind man who was along the road of Jericho. You remember him? And when Jesus passed by, he heard Jesus was passing by. And, and it's interesting to me what he cries out. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You see, people knew Jesus as the son of David. This one who was to come in the line But we also can turn to the very last chapter of the book of Scripture and see in Revelation 22, verse 16. These are in red letters, church. These are words of Jesus himself. In fact, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And Jesus says, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Jesus himself testifies that he's the root. He's the offspring of David. As we're looking at a little bit of the who behind David, chapter 23 of 2 Samuel is helpful as well. 
These are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. There's his family connection. Thus says the man raised up on high. There's this favor that's granted to him. The anointed of the God of Jacob. There's this covenantal connection. And the sweet psalmist of Israel. That says a lot about his heart. As you know, David is the one who wrote a good number of the psalms we have in the scripture. David, perhaps the most well-known part of David is his duel in the valley with that giant named Goliath. Remember the account? 1 Samuel 17. David stands alongside, in many ways, stands alongside Abraham and Moses and Paul. as men of integrity and spiritual fitness in the biblical text. He's an example of one who had a heart for God. In fact, David is deemed, is he not, a man after God's own heart. That's found in Samuel, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. So that's a little bit of the who surrounding this person, David. You know, 2 Samuel in many ways is really a history of God at work through the life of David. We've seen this with some other folks as we've studied these history books in the scripture, right? We started it with Joshua and we saw the history of God at work through the life of Joshua. And we've seen the history uh, continue and now here we are. In 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel opens, you'll notice this if you read the text for this week, you'll notice that it opens with a gap. Saul is now dead, Jonathan is dead. Both were slain in battle with the Philistines in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And ever since 1 Samuel chapter 16, there's been evidence of Saul's decline and David's incline. The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and the spirit of the Lord came upon David, according to the text in 1 Samuel 16. And David, through the last half of 1 Samuel, is waiting. He's enduring. He's persevering through the trial of being chased and and literally hunted down by Saul. And with Saul now dead... It seems things are in place now for David to be the king. But notice something in the text. Look with me at chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. It happened after this. This is after the death of Saul and and the things that occurred there in chapter 1, which we'll touch on a bit in just a moment. It happened after this. That David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. Now, I want you, church, to notice the first question from David to the Lord is not, So, are you going to make me king now, or what? Do you notice that in David's questions, he doesn't even bring up the issue of king? There's this big, giant gap that exists right now for the nation of Israel. They're without a king, aren't they? David doesn't ask about it. No mention of being king. Instead, what's he doing? He's inquiring of the Lord. This is the first aspect of David's life that I'd like us to to touch on here. David inquired of the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. This phrase dots the landscape of both Samuel books. Describing the life of David. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 23. In verses 2 and 4. David inquired of the Lord. 
David inquired of the Lord. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 30. In strengthening himself in the Lord, he asks Abiathar the priests to bring the ephod. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David, verse 8 of chapter 30, 1 Samuel. So David inquired of the Lord. We also see it here in 2 Samuel. Chapter 2, verse 1. We see it again in chapter 5, verse 19. Chapter 5, verse 23. Chapter 21, verse 1. When there's a famine in the land. It stands out as a, as a marked contrast in David's life to his predecessor, Saul. He inquired of God for direction, for wisdom on whether or not he should enter into battle. But you know, the more you read, the more you come to understand that David inquired of God... I believe it was this, church, simply as an outflow of his relationship with God. How often do you inquire of God? When someone gets hurt or sick? When you lose a job and you need to find a new one? When tragedy strikes? Are you one to inquire of God when things go south? Some of you remember and recall where you were and what you were doing when the Twin Towers fell. Shortly after that, you probably also recall floods of people coming into the church. It's interesting that when things go south, how quickly people tend to inquire of the Lord. Are you inquiring of God out of reaction to something that's gone wrong? Or do you make it a pattern to inquire of God on the front end? Inquire of God. Ask Him. This is, this is basic, isn't it? This is 101. Ask Him what you should be doing. Lay your concerns before Him. Ask him for wisdom. Why? The Bible says from his mouth comes wisdom. The Bible says that he will give wisdom to all without finding fault because he's a generous God. Let God order your steps. Cast all of your cares before the Lord. Do you need direction for something right now in your life? Do you need wisdom for something specific right now in your life? Need some specific input on a decision that you've been wavering on? Inquire of God. His counsel, listen, his counsel is always true. He never lies. He's, he's never going to steer you in a wrong direction. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. And through David's life, we learn that inquiring of God is not a reactive exercise to be practiced when all else fails. Inquiring of God is what we do when we have relationship with God. We talk with Him. We share our concerns with Him. We ask Him for guidance. We speak as it were naturally to Him, as we would a close friend. Well, in addition to inquiring of God, David is seen in this book exhibiting kindness of God. Kindness of God. We've already seen a little bit of this theme, haven't we, back in the book of Ruth? Remember the kindness of God and the kinsman redeemer were two big lines that we talked about there in the book of Ruth? We see this kindness of God displayed in a great way in David's life. And really to get, to get a, a, a context for this, we go backwards again to 1 Samuel and go to chapter 24 and look at, look at this with me in chapter 24. This is the first time we have 
recorded for us when David and his men have opportunity to kill Saul. The Lord really just delivers Saul right into their hands. Verse 6, chapter 24, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to, to rise against Saul. Flip forward another page or two to chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. This is the second instance recorded of Saul really being just handed over, if you will. Uh, we see his opportunity to take out Saul. We'll pick it up in verse 9 of chapter 26. David said to Abishai, one of the sons of Zariah, uh, Do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him or his day shall come to die or he shall go out to battle and perish. Prophetic words right there from David. The Lord forbid, verse 11, that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So we see this pattern in David's life about the Lord's anointed. It's a big deal. And as 1 Samuel closes, David is not king. As 2 Samuel opens, he's still not king. But you look at 2 Samuel chapter 1. And you see this Amalekite who comes to David with this report from the battlefield at Mount Gilboa where Saul and Jonathan were slain. And this Amalekite has with him the crown and bracelet of Saul. Remember this? And testifies to David in verse 10 that he was the one who stood over Saul and killed him because surely he said he, he just didn't think he was going to be able to live after he had been wounded. So this Amalekite takes his life, or so he says. Verse 14, chapter 1, David says, How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? You see, even though Saul tried to murder David, there's a spirit of respect for the Lord's anointed. Even though Saul meant evil for David, David in return shows honor. David has compassion on Saul's family for the sake of Jonathan, his loyal friend. In fact, David teaches all of Judah this song of the bow. At the end of chapter 1. Why does he do that? That they might remember Saul and Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. There's, there's, there's a respect. A, a certain level of spiritual maturity that's present here in David's life, church. The Amalekite brings Saul's crown and bracelet to David. Thinking he's going to get rewarded. But instead he gets a death sentence. Fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 4. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is murdered while lying in his bed by two fellows named Rechab and Baana, Benjamites. They kill Ishbosheth, and as if that's not bad enough, they take his head with them. Yep, they do. Read it, it's there. They take his head. And they take his head and they flee to David. And you get the idea that they are pleased as could be with the idea of what they've done. Here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy. And David, instead of rewarding them, executes a death sentence upon them just as he did to the Amalekite in chapter 1. You see, David didn't, in, uh, he didn't tolerate injustice. He had compassion to serve. He had a kindness about him. And although having this kindness, he was also able at the same time to execute right judgment when necessary. In fact, Psalm 101 speaks of his personal holiness as king. But it also speaks to the kind of people that David is looking for to serve in his court. To serve alongside of him. And in fact he says. I will not know wickedness. It's not going to be around me. 
It's not going to happen. The Lord's anointed for David was sacred. You, you didn't kill the Lord's anointed. Even when the Lord's anointed was trying to take his life, David opted instead to wait on the Lord. Another psalm of David, Psalm 37, verse, 20, verse 34 says, Wait on the Lord and keep his way. Wait on the Lord and keep his way. And he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Earlier in that psalm, in 37, it says, trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. David is seen in this book of 2 Samuel showing kindness toward Saul and Jonathan. He shows kindness for Abner. Remember Abner who gets killed, he gets murdered. And, and David laments with song again, with song. Don't miss the, the songs that David puts forth. David is the psalter. He's the one who's singing, writing many of these psalms. He writes one for Abner after his death. He shows kindness to Saul's family in chapter 9. The son of Jonathan. Remember the lame, the crippled young man, Mephibosheth? He repays kindness to Hanun, the Ammonite, in chapter 10. Since Hanun's father had treated him kindly. David shows kindness and mercy to this fellow Shimei. The guy who cursed him and was throwing dirt clods at him. Remember that? As he's leaving town. That was Shimei. A few chapters later, Shimei comes back. Asking forgiveness and David shows kindness. This thread of kindness, mercy, compassion. This is David's heart. It's captured through the book of 2 Samuel. And listen, David is seen pouring out this kindness on those, this is so important, on those who really didn't deserve it. Saul, Abner, family of Saul in general, with the asterisk exception of Jonathan, perhaps, Shimei. Those who were deemed David's enemies were oftentimes the recipients of David's kindness and compassion. And I stepped back and I, I thought, just like Jesus would do. Just like Jesus would do. What do you mean? Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, these are words of Jesus. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. David inquired of the Lord. David also modeled this kindness of the Lord. David also confessed his sin to the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He displayed and exhibited this kindness of the Lord. But we see that also here in this book of 2 Samuel, he confessed his sin to the Lord. And I'd like to spend just a little bit more time perhaps on this one. And you might be wondering, why bring up his sin? I mean, David, David did so many good things. Why the need to speak of his sin? I believe 2 Samuel chapter 11 
is the hinge chapter in this book. The chapter I had read this morning, chapter 7, is, is large in terms of the theme that we're talking about, been covering the covenant and God's covenant with David and how that's going to lead to an everlasting house and an everlasting throne, right? But chapter 11, in many ways, is pivotal in David's life, in the life of his house, in the life of, his, of this nation that he's overseeing. That he's ruling. There are a lot of good things happening up to this point in chapter 11. David defeats the Jebusites, enters into Jerusalem. Remember, chapter 6 chronicles the lengthy process of transporting the Ark of the Covenant from Abinadab's house to the Holy City. There's a three month hiatus there where the Ark has to be set aside in the home of Obed Edom. The ark makes its way, along with David, his men, into Jerusalem. Chapter 7 is where we see that Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. And through the prophet Nathan, David is told that his son, which is going to be Solomon, right? His son's going to build God a house. And he's promised in chapter 7 to have a son on the throne. And this throne is promised forever. This house and a kingdom shall be established through Solomon forever. Chapter 8 details more of David's victories in battle. We see this phrase in chapter 8, the Lord preserving David wherever he went. And we see chapter 10 highlighting David's victories over Ammon and Syria. And then you get to chapter 11. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening. That's what the text says. Verse 2. It's right here where I would just like to insert I believe some very important words from the life of David. That we can learn here. Chapter 11 is a turning point in David's life. It's a turning point in the life of his household. Even influencing the life of the nation. Look how quickly it all began. Then it happened one evening. Guard yourselves. Put on the whole armor of God. The evil one is doing his best to gain a foothold in your life. And he has more than one way to get his anchors established in your life. It doesn't have to be what I would call the Job way where all these bad things happen to him. His family, all these physical ailments. The evil one isn't solely identified with difficulties and hardships that come in your life. Sometimes he picks up on the victories in your life. Pats you on the back. Piles on the accolades. Uses your success to set you up for a tumble. Henrietta Mears said the devil would rather throw a man when he is on the heights. He falls farther and harder. It's true. Second Samuel chapter 11 shows us a few of the crafty schemes of the evil one. We see the context leading up to 11 is victory and success in the life of David. We see also that David remained at Jerusalem. There's a sense in which David, one might say he's resting. Someone else might say he was being idle. 
It was a time when kings were to be at war. David remained at Jerusalem. But we also see one of his age-old schemes, sexual temptation. David saw, David sent and inquired, who is this woman? David coveted, he sent messengers and took her. And then David attempts to cover up his sin. Ever tried to hide your sin? Psalm 32, written by David, gives us a description of what it's like to have sin that's unconfessed. When I kept silent, he says, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand, that's the Lord, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. You get the sense with unconfessed sin, there's a heaviness, there's, there's guilt, there's, there's shame, there's dryness, there's depression, there's a draining spirit. Just sucks all the life out of you. But you look at the next verse in that same psalm. Psalm 32 verse 5. Here's what happened when David acknowledged his sin before the Lord. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And really that takes us, should take us right back up to chapter 32, verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Forgiveness, cleansing, joy, freedom. See, when David finds out that Bathsheba is expecting a child... He tries to have Uriah come back from the battlefront and sleep with his wife. The wheels of deception are already turning. Well, plan A doesn't work twice. So plan B, he writes a letter to Joab, his commander, instructing him to place Uriah in the heat of the battle and then pull back. Essentially what David wrote was a death warrant for Uriah. You get to the end of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, the very last verse, the very last sentence in that verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What did David do, friends? What is it that so greatly displeased the Lord? You know, as I work through the Ten Commandments, a case could be made that David broke nine out of the Ten Commandments in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Nine of them. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. David placed this woman as his priority, even though she was not his wife. David became consumed with having this woman as his own. Commandment number two says, you shall not bow down to idols. Nothing in heaven, earth, or sea. One writer said that people are our idol of choice. They are worshipped because we perceive they have power to give us something. Commandment number three. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. By his actions, David blasphemes the name of the Lord, bringing shame to God and his name. Commandment number five. Honor your father and mother. Are these actions honoring to Jesse, his father? Commandment number six, you shall not murder. It's his directive to Joab that results in Uriah's death. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. David has relations with a married woman and he's already married himself to several wives. Commandment number eight, you shall not steal. David literally steals Uriah's wife to fulfill his selfish 
desires. Because he can. He's the king. And he uses his delegated power wrongly for personal gain. Commandment number nine, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. David kills one of his most loyal servants. One of his own mighty men, in fact. When the servant comes from Joab relaying that Uriah is dead, David goes along with the charade, trying to make it sound noble that he got killed on the field of battle. Oh, it's just part of war. Truth is, David testified falsely against Uriah. Commandment number 10, do not covet your neighbor's wife. David ran through all the warning signs on Bathsheba. He pursued her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks. Proverbs 7, verse 22. Proverbs 5, 21 to 23 says, For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man. And he's caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction. And in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Now flowing out of 2 Samuel chapter 11 is Psalm 51. Written on the heels of David's adultery with Bathsheba. This is a psalm of repentance. Crying out to God to cleanse him from his sin. Remember that victory is the context leading into 11. Defeat comes out of chapter 11. David is evidenced on the battlefield in chapter 10. Doing what a king is supposed to do. He's found at home in chapter 11. Reaping the consequences of an idle life. Victories are wonderful. But they can lead to a letting down of the guard, a sense of complacency, a spirit of pride, perhaps. In fact, we see in 1 Samuel 18, this phrase repeated multiple times, David behaved very wisely, and the Lord was with him. Here we see David behaving poorly. He falls prey to sexual temptation. A beautiful woman. James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16 says that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my dear brethren. See, a king is supposed to lead his people in battle. A king doesn't send troops to do the job. He leads them to victory, just like he did in 2 Samuel chapter 10. A king must operate according to a high standard of righteousness. A king doesn't take advantage of his position. He acts with integrity and does the right thing. A king who lies is an abomination to the Lord. His mouth must not transgress in judgment, the proverb writer says. A king must not commit wickedness. For the throne is established by righteousness. How often, friends, are we victorious on the battlefield but defeated at home? Think about that for just a moment. You might do really well at the office, but how are you at home? You might excel with your clients. You might have a great name at the workplace. But how are things at home with your wife and children? Nathan shows up to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 with these words from the Lord. I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. That jumped off the page. 
because you have despised me. Have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Sin is never a pretty picture. Sin is deemed a despising of the Lord himself on one hand. It's also seen as a despising of the Lord's commandments. Sin that remains unconfessed is debilitating. Sin that remains unconfessed rips apart horizontal relationships. Sin that gets swept under the rug still stinks. And everyone is still aware of it. Sin is what separates man from God. Amen? It's what separates us from God. Sin. So when sin's not dealt with and left hanging, it impairs the vertical relationship with God as well. David inquires of the Lord. He models the kindness of the Lord. And he confesses his sin to the Lord. He takes it to the right person. In Psalm 51, verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He equates his sin with evil. Well, the words from Nathan the prophet begin to unfold as early as the very next chapter with Amnon and Tamar. David's family becomes a complicated mix of hatred, deceit, passivity, bitterness, Murder and chaos. Those are some words, I think, that are descriptive of his family. A portrait of dysfunction in many ways. We have a king with a dysfunctional home. Amnon lusts after his stepsister. Absalom acts with deceit to overthrow his father, David. David seems disengaged with family life in many ways. Distant. Instead of trying to reconcile with Absalom, he further distances himself. Time passes. Absalom murders Amnon. And we see that Absalom is the one who comes into Jerusalem. Treason. David mourns Absalom's death. Mixed with that, you have various other personalities found here in 2 Samuel. How about Joab? Isn't Joab an interesting character? What a weasel of a guy. I mean, this guy is power hungry. He wants to be in control. When Amasa is, is put, put in place to be the leader of the army, uh, Joab doesn't like that, does he? And he very quickly finds a way to remove Amasa from the ranks. Or Jonadab. Oh. I, you know, I wrote in the margin of the Bible on this guy. Jonadab is a worm. I mean, if you look, he comes on the scene in chapter 13 of 2 Samuel. Jonadab, it says, Amnon had a friend. Some friend this guy is. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, who was David's brother. Okay? Listen to the description. Jonadab was a very crafty man. I put uh-oh in the margins. Because you know what that reminds me of? Genesis 3. And this guy fits the bill. Crafty. Just like the serpent himself. Sowing discord. Then there's Shimei, the guy who curses David. Throws dirt clods at him. I, that, that scene is interesting. Then there's Sheba who starts a rebellion in chapter 20. And then there's that wise woman. She didn't even have a name. The wise woman from the, from the city of Abel. You remember, you remember Joab is coming and they got the rams and they're going, they're getting ready to destroy the city. And this wise woman, that's how she's described, a wise woman. She didn't have a name. This wise woman comes and says, hey, what's going on? Why are you breaking down our wall? And Joab says, hey, we're here to get Sheba. She's like, okay. And so she goes and talks to the people of the city. And next thing you know, Sheba's head comes flying over the wall. And they give it to Joab. And Joab leaves and the city's fine. She's a wise woman. These people in the text. Oh, we have uh, also the uh, Ahithophel and Hushai. Remember them? The counselors. 
Interesting. Folks that get weaved into the account in 2 Samuel. Well, this 2 Samuel closes with a song of praise in chapter 22. David's last words in 23. And then an account of David's sin against God. And his confession. I, would, I need to add that. He confessed his sin once again here in 24. The text closes at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And Gad the prophet speaks the word of the Lord to David. And he says in 24 verse 18. Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now Aruna sees him coming and he offers David the threshing floor. And even throws in the oxen for sacrifice. He says, hey David, it's yours. It's all yours. To which David responds. No. But I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Well, there's a lot we can learn right there, friends. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Remember, 70,000 men died in this plague. But I'd like you to see this, that at the end of 2 Samuel, David is last seen worshiping at the altar of the Lord. That's the final sketch we have of David in this book. Sin, sin confessed. There's urgent plea for the mercy of the Lord. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are great, David says. Purchases made. To erect an altar to the Lord upon which sacrifices are made. So David leaves the scene of 2 Samuel. Here's the picture. He leaves the scene of 2 Samuel as a living sacrifice. Offering himself to his holy God. Desiring once again to be a pleasing vessel. A sweet smelling aroma. To his God. Church, I'm sure that reminds you of a verse in Romans chapter 12 where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, appropriate service. David inquired of the Lord. He exhibited the kindness of the Lord. He confessed his sin to the Lord. And it closes by pointing to his worshiping. He worshiped the Lord. And that continues on into the book of Psalms, does it not? He worshiped the Lord. David is God's man after his own heart. From him, the Messiah is coming. The branch is coming out of David. I leave you with these words from Psalm 78. God chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes, the young lambs that he had, that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he, that's David, So David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Praise God for this book of 2 Samuel where we see the history of God at work in the life of this young man, David. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this life of David that you've presented for us in the text. There are so many things here, Lord, in this book that we can hold on to, that we can learn from. Principles, patterns, precepts that we can glean. Father, we thank you that David inquired of you. He made it a pattern to inquire of you. 
Uh, David's life is one that exhibits and models this kindness of yours. David showed compassion, extended mercy. This kindness was a part of his life. And he showed this kindness to those who really didn't deserve it in many ways. May we in our lives exhibit this same kindness. Oh Lord, we also thank you for the picture we see here in his life of confessing his sin to you. Lord, in our lives as we sin, may we be quick to confess our sins. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, it tells us who you are, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But if we confess our sins, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh Lord, I pray we would be quick to confess our sins and not experience the the dryness and the guilt and the shame that's described in Psalm 32. But Lord, instead we would desire and long to experience the joy and the freedom and the wonderful knowledge of knowing we've been forgiven and cleansed. And Father, I pray that as a church we would know what it is to worship you. The, the, the closing picture here in 2 Samuel is one of David at the altar of the Lord offering sacrifices that cost him. Oh, Father, thank you. I pray that you would impress upon us the very nature of, of our worship and what it costs us. What, it, there's a sacrificial nature here. David is is a living example of a living sacrifice. He's offering himself. He's presenting himself to you. And may we as a church present ourselves to you in the very same manner. Asking of you to examine us, to have your way in us. Thank you, Father, for your good word. And I thank you, Lord, for this book of 2 Samuel. I pray, Lord, that we would take away much as your spirit teaches us. That we would not just hear these words today, Lord, but would be moved to put them into practice. And by faith, carry them out that we might please you with our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.